Hey gang, what's going on? I'm your host, Red Hills Rancher, and this is the Ranching Reboot Podcast. This episode of your favorite weekly podcast brought to you by Grassroots Carbon, who are paying ranchers just like you for good grazing practices and responsible adaptive management. There's no upfront out-of-pocket cost to the rancher and very little risk as long as you don't plan to plow up your pastures. Drought happens in the Great Plains more than 50% of the time, and Grassroots thought about that and accounted for it too, along with wildfires. Basically, as long as you don't plow up the prairie again, just enjoy the payments and use them to take your operation to the next level or go buy a new pickup. Whatever makes you happy. Don't let me tell you how to run your life. I just want to encourage you to imagine the possibilities of what you could do with a carbon storage contract with Grassroots Carbon. When you're ready to take your management to new heights, head on over to grassrootscarbon.com reboot and start your journey today or just click on the link in the episode description. One of the really cool things I've noticed over the years practicing regenerative ag and good grazing management is that the wildlife, fish, and game here have all increased in numbers. The first hatch of quail is up and moving, and man, there's a lot of coveys with over 20 birds. Last year, I partnered with Land Trust to help me connect with sportsmen, fishermen, and folks just like you wanting to be outside. I hate strangers knocking on my door and asking to use my land. With Land Trust, every user is identity verified by the team, and every property is visited by one of their many territory reps. My rep, Tom, has been great to work with. He's been out twice on scouting trips, and we often talk about other recreation opportunities. As a matter of fact, just this morning, he sent me a picture of a real nice buck one of the game cameras picked up. So click the link in the description to check out the listings on the ranch, and come check out one of my 14 privately stocked ponds with channel cat, smallmouth, or bluegill. If fly fishing's more your thing, I have miles of creeks with deep spots, including two beaver complexes, where I caught, I don't know, like three bluegill in a row. It was pretty cool. Anyway, fishing, hunting, bird watching, stargazing, just plain hiking, Land Trust has something for you. Click the link in the description. And if you're on the other side of the fence as a Land Trust, uh, I'm sorry, as a landowner, I'll wager that Land Trust can help you find some more revenue streams. All you have to do is click the link in the description. Last week, my friends at Noble Research Institute had me in Stillwater for their Essentials of Regenerative Ranching course, and I really had a great time meeting new friends and reconnecting with the facilitators, Stephen and Mike. I thought it was such a great thing and such valuable knowledge. I begged enough that the fine folks at Noble are allowing me to give away a full tuition scholarship for the Ardmore School, October 31st and November 1st. All you have to do to win is go to redhillsrancher.com slash noble and sign up or click the link in the description. This is a great opportunity for two days of education. I really want to share it with you guys and send one lucky fan to Ardmore for the Noble Foundation's Essentials of Regenerative Ranching course. That's October 31st through November 1st in Ardmore, Oklahoma. Enter the giveaway at redhillsrancher.com slash noble. And don't forget that next week is the Bottom Line Conference out in Lakin, Kansas. Bottom Line is the best little regen ag conference in western Kansas, and it's one of my favorites. This year, they're having Steve Campbell to talk, Keith Burns, several other great ones that you're not going to want to miss. So I'll see you guys at Bottom Line in Lakin. There's a link to the registration page and the agenda in the show description. And one more thing, if you're tired of ads or just want to support the show, head on over to Spotify and take a look at the subscription options. For just five bucks a month, you'll get ad-free versions of every episode. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.
There you are. How are you, brother? I'm good, man. How are you? I am. Who? Today. <laughs> that sounds like the uh, stereotypical rancher in the middle of summer. <sighs> well, I was gone for two days. I, was, I just got back from Noble Research's Essentials of Ranching course, and no, in yeah. uh, this one's in Stillwater. And um, mm -hmm. if I didn't screw up in the intro, I've got an announcement and. Like this is kind of relevant. So I'm giving it, I'm going to give away a seat to an upcoming essentials of regenerative ranching course. Uh, run back to the intro. If you want to know how to, how to do that, because I haven't quite got the link set up as we're recording this, but uh, hopefully yeah. by release time, that'll all be done. Uh, so yeah, we're going to, it was a really good course. It was two days. Great intro. Like they started off with, you know, intro into six principles of soil health. They did a great review of, you know, of the four ecosystem processes, a little dip into economics spent a lot of time outside um actually doing practical things like looking at soil okay and and setting up transects and teaching teaching the students how to evaluate uh pasture condition and forage so i thought okay. it was really cool, cool deal so i i twisted some arms and begged and said let me give away a seat to somebody on my podcast and they're like okay we can do that so yeah cool. I, uh, I mean honestly i've i've you know been to and seen a lot of schools like not many of them actually give you applicable field time. Most of them are like, hey, we're going to put you in front of a screen sitting in a classroom for days on end. And then like, oh, yeah, we might take you outside and stick you in a pasture for 30 minutes or, you know, or an hour or something. And, uh, so it's pretty good that they actually give you that tangible experience. So one more thing about that, and then, then I'll kind of move on because... Mm -hmm. One of the things that I really appreciated was that the throughout the two days, if somebody had a question that kind of maybe wasn't really relevant or the facilitators thought was going to be, we're going to cover later, yeah. they put it over on a whiteboard and call it parking lot questions. When he wrote okay. parking lot questions on the board, it was right behind me. I'm thinking like, what the hell is anybody going to ask about the parking lot? I mean, parking lots are pretty simple. <laughs> I mean, what kind of questions could somebody have about where we're parking our cars? It just doesn't make any sense. But then like 10 minutes later, he explained, this is a parking lot for questions. questions. Like, I understand <laughs> now. So what they did is they had like five or six up there. And at the end of the day, on day two, there, there was a big block of time reserved and we went through and we had group discussions on those parking lot questions. And I think it really enabled producers to leave with a sense that they had an actionable item. Mm -hmm. And God, you know, that's huge too, right? Yeah. You know, how many times you go to a conference and waste a day and you're like, I have no idea what I learned or why it's important, but it was cool. Yeah. But, you know, I think, I think a lot of folks left with something that was, that was actionable, even if it is like a baby step, I think they yeah. at least left with something actionable. Mm -hmm. But so I was gone for two days. I left like midday Monday. I mean, you know what it's like being away for a couple of days in the middle of summer. <laughs> Catch up's fun. Nothing was wrong this morning. Everything was where they're supposed to be. My water systems, wow. were open. the fences were hot. The, the, the ranching gods have smiled upon you. Like, whew, dodged the bullet on this one. Yeah. Yeah, I've, I've just been, today's just been in, I had to run home. I have, I've had two meetings before this one and got another one after this one. So yeah, it's a, uh, playing catch up is fun, but schedule is yeah. pretty clear tomorrow. So I think I'll be able to, if I don't get it all done today, it'll get done tomorrow. There you go. 
it's good to have some breathing room scheduled. <laughs> uh, yeah, scheduled is right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, whatever that means. When, it's pretty bad when you have to schedule your recreation time. Yeah, yeah, I know that. That's just the the life we live, though. We chose this life, or or it chose us one way or the other. <laughs> yeah, yeah, one way or the other. So, so how's things in Georgia, my guy? Uh, man, I. Could complain, but who would want to hear it? Uh, we are experiencing above average rainfall. Uh, the creeks are still running, which uh, to be in nearing the middle of August and still have that and to have an overabundance of grass. Uh, man, it's finally feel like we've hit a threshold of like, man, we're actually where we should be. Um, yeah, uh, you and I talked back in the spring and you guys kind of forgive me for saying this. I have a hard time. Yeah. Like when you get 60 inches of rain a year and it hasn't rained in only two weeks. <laughs> and you're out, yeah. That was a little hard to swallow from, you know, just, just from perspective, but I do, I do understand the challenges. So it's, yeah. you started off dry and it got wet. Yeah. So like we tip, we actually never really, we had a little bit of a dry spell late winter, but that's kind of normal for us. Um, but honestly, like we hit, spring pretty much with ample rain and it and it honestly hasn't let up we've been getting uh you know thunderstorms roll through pretty much you know two three a week um i think we have we've had the longest stretch we've gone without rain this summer is two weeks um and that is acceptable here um much like in you know you were talking with hobbs on the podcast i know you did earlier with him you know when you get down here the humidity level stays so high that like you still get effective dew on the grass, which, you know, it will supplement rainfall for an, for a short period of time. And so we like, I, I honestly have never seen some of my pastures look the way they look now. Um, I mean, I've got so much grass, so much so that it, I'm going to have to start skipping pastures because a lot of it's gotten away from me on a 50 day rest. Um, yeah, should have been, should have hit it at 40 days and just couldn't, couldn't make it turn fast enough. Um, so we're like, we're doing pretty good on, on the grass frontage. I'm looking at, uh, probably I would say we're going to preg check. So we just pulled the bulls Monday, uh, from our 45 day breeding season. And I was going to ask how I long. Think, yeah. Um, it was supposed to be 42 days, but again, I had so much grass in front of them to get them up to the corral that I had to bleed off an extra three days just to, to get them there. Um, I, which I don't I was think like, anything ah. wrong with that. I mean, no, no, I, I wasn't, uh, you know, been out of the frame. I'm a little more comfortable with 45 than 42. Cause with 45, yeah. you're guaranteed to catch two cycles with 42. Yes. Yeah, it, exactly. Right. You kind of, you, you're flubbing the line there. Um, so anyway, we uh, we just pulled them. We'll preg check. Um, I actually just texted the vet today, try to set up a date to preg check later. Um, and so you turn out, that would have been, you turn out what, the third week of June? Yes. I'd have That's to go back and look. I've got it written down on my phone exactly which day it was. And I can't tell you off the top of my head. But it, yeah. It's like third week of June, so that puts you, Kevin, third week of March. Yeah. Okay. That's 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 kind of ideal for us. April is pretty much the latest I want to calve. If we'll have some calves in May, which is okay, but I want the bulk of my calving to happen in April. 
March. Uh, I used to think March was ideal uh, because March is really when the grass starts coming on. But we've had two cool springs in a row and the grass doesn't really come on until late March. And I'm like, I would really like to have those cows. I could get them in a lot better condition in, in April and calve in good condition uh, a lot easier on really good grass and still have 60 days post-birth to peak lactation of really high quality forage. Um, I'm like, so like that window before we get into super heavy fly load season. So that's kind of like my ideal time frame. So that's what we're shooting for. Um, but yeah, so we're, uh, we'll wait and see, but we should, I'm anticipating probably having, you know, if I get 75% bread, I'll, I'll be pretty happy. Um, because I turned out a lot of young bulls this year. So okay. we'll, you know, that can go one way or the other. Either everything gets stuck because it's like a bunch of middle school boys, um, <laughs> you know, or they're just, ah! um, or, um, you know, it can go the other the way. Time over, the, over fighting yeah, and not doing Yeah. Job. And not, not knowing what they're actually doing. So, um, We'll see how it turns out, but I anticipate that with whatever cull we do of opens, um, you know, we should go in to this winter. Pro we probably will not have had the the low. We'll have the lowest stock numbers we've had since we started, more than likely. So I'm anticipating a no hay winter. Um, I'm still going to stock hay. I'm buying hay this summer just because, you know, you never know what winter might throw at you. Um, and I'd rather have that, that reserve just in case. Um, and so anyway, but so we'll be prepared just in case, but I'm, I'm going to do my darndest to with my mama cows now with my finishing animals, different story. Right. Um, but, but with the mama cows, I'm going to try to overwinter with no hay. So we'll see how that goes. I might well, be eating those words. It seems like we're doing one of these about every year. I had to look. The last one we did, this one, this one should be, I think, 128. Uh, mm -hmm. I said it, so that means something will happen between now and release day. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, the, this one should be 128. The last one we did was 79, and okay. it was August. It came out August 29th, so we probably recorded it right out a year ago. Okay. Wow. Dang. We, we, we need to we need to circle back around a little more often than that, Ryan. <laughs> no kidding. Man, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, we, we've talked a couple times. Um, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So it doesn't always have to be a podcast. <laughs> no, no. I want to circle back to your comment about do. And yeah, I, I love that observation. And, you know, here in southwest Kansas, we can either like this year, it's abnormally humid. The last two years mm -hmm. were abnormally dry. Yeah. It, it, the amount of dew that we have on the grass in the mornings, mm -hmm. like this morning, I, I was wet from the calf down out yep. walking through the grass, like boots totally soaked. Yep. And I, I think people really underestimate how much that dew does mm -hmm. and how much more dew a good, healthy pasture with tall grass is going to catch. Capture. Absolutely. Or Bermuda grass pasture that's two inches tall. Yep. You know, that, that two inches tall Bermuda grass pasture that you didn't catch any dew on that. No. Okay. What I caught on my, you know, four foot tall, big blue stem, my 30 inches of, of side oats, that's maybe a significant not amount, but it's significant enough to help the plants out. Yeah. 
And so like, for me, it's not, that's, that's a measurement that I take into account, not on the thriving side of the scale. It's on the survival side of the scale. Uh, you know, like I don't anticipate due to allow my grasses like do alone rather to allow my, my, my pastures to thrive. Uh, they still need, we still need effective rainfall, but, uh, you know, like I said, it can stretch that time and a healthier pasture, obviously it only grows. So like, if you go back and watch, um, especially a lot of my older TikTok videos, I was, I was wearing like bibs, like fishing, because I would go out in the early in the morning. This is before I, I started moving the cattle later in the day. Um, I would go out early in the morning when it was still cool outside and be wading through, you know, like chest high grass. And I would come back just soaked. So eventually I, I realized I'm like, this ain't going to work. I had to wear, wear like fishing bibs um, just to go through the grass. So I didn't end up soaking wet. Of course, then you end up sweating yourself soaking wet where the, so what was the point of that but uh yeah, you're wet on yeah, both man, sides the, of a waterproof garment yeah <laughs> exactly but i think the um the do thing like so actually like the shape and in fact i almost want to say maybe me and hobbs have talked about this before um so we talk about a lot about like leaf to stem ratios and so like a really stemmy plant doesn't really collect that much dew but a, a very leaf laden plant actually funnels said dew towards the root system towards it, its base and like like you said i don't think that there's just insanely measurable amounts of of water that's coming off of that but it's a significant enough amount that i don't think you can just negate it altogether like you like i said i mean you walk through i can walk five feet you know, through a, a three foot tall grass pasture early in the morning here and, and be dripping wet. So, you know, that, that's not a small amount of water. Um, so anyway, I, like, but on top of that, cause we're still getting that we're getting good effective rainfall here as well. And um, I mean, we great. So I'm looking out the window here now um, at a pasture that, that got away from me that we 50 mm, with that part I'm looking at here is, 50 days ago um, would have been grazed off at a million pounds of stock density. Um, and I have never seen it come back the way it did. Uh, like it, it just, cause I actually grazed the cattle at a million pounds. I had some mature thistle uh, that I was trying to knock back and they, they would trample some of it, rip the leaves off some of it, bite the heads off some of it still ended up with a lot of standing stemmy thistle. So I come in and would mow behind them to clean that part up. Um, and yeah, man, like it, it just, I guess because of the effective rainfall plus the herd effect, like, Oh my God, like that stuff it, within 30 days, it was already over three feet tall. Um, and it got to five feet without a seed head on it. And I was just, and I was just like, Oh God. That's when I was like, I I've created a jungle. Um, and I don't know, you, you may not have seen it. I posted a TikTok video a couple weeks ago. I haven't really posted much lately, um, such as we've had a newborn child. So I haven't had a lot of free time. But Congratulations. Uh, thank you, sir. Um, just trying to get some more help out here. <laughs> Eventually. Um, Your own labor force, right? Yeah. But uh, but I posted a TikTok video and I was like, just putting up fence through a sugar cane field. Cause that's legitimately what it looks like. I've just got 
uh, Johnson grass growing. And of course, I've had multiple people uh, message me since then and ask me about specifically grazing Johnson grass um, because there is, I guess, this stigma of like, oh, you got to be scared of Johnson grass. It's it's evil. Either it's invasive, it's the devil, or it'll kill your cows. And you know, in my context where we live, you know. I look at Johnson grass as it's the uh, Sudex that comes back for me every year. You know, like uh, it, I, I have seen, you know, it's the most favorable forage we have this time of year, um, that and the crabgrass. And both of those are, you know, essentially weeds, but they're highly productive and they make good forage. So um, I've had a lot of people ask me some questions about, how to graze Johnson drip grass effectively. And I'm like, just graze it the same way you graze Sudex. You know, just be wary and have a plan for, you know, if you get a uh, unexpected frost, have a plan to, to get them off of it. But uh, we've never seen much issue from that. But yeah, I, I would love to have you physically be here to see what some of these pastures look like, because it's kind of hard to just, you know, snap a picture and be like, here, uh, and really get a, an idea for it. I, I feel that. I, I'm trying to get to a place where this winter, next spring, I've got time to get out and I've got time to travel. That's I'm trying yeah. to get there. And yeah. trust me, there's nothing more that I'd love than to, you know, show up at your place with a couple of microphones and a table and a tent, <laughs> go sit out underneath that tree behind you in that picture in the middle of your yeah. cow pasture and do a podcast amongst your cows. Like I am, I am excited to go do that. Like that's, oh yeah. I'm really excited to 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 try just to have some you know, have some late latent going on in the background. <laughs> I I might have jumped the gun. I got a little excited trying to put all that together in the summer and start thinking about it because you know nobody really wants to go sit outside when it's 110 in the afternoon. Yeah, and 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 just yap for a couple hours. Like maybe we ought to yeah. wait. Maybe we ought to wait for cooler weather. Mm -hmm. uh, but test runs I've done so far been they've just been a lot of fun. They've turned out well. So we're gonna continue developing that and try to get that content out well it'll probably be a real good seasonal thing for you so you can film a lot of your uh your northern climates you know more in the the late spring uh early fall and then you could you know as as you move more towards the cooler seasons in either direction you know you just start to move south, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you, can, south. you can basically be a podcasting snowbird there you go there you go <laughs> I have to get Starlink so I can go podcast from the yep. San Juan Mountains. <laughs> I like it. I like it. But no, Johnson grass. Mm -hmm. It's it's not the devil. And no. okay, so it's it's declared an invasive species or a noxious weed in a lot of places. Mm -hmm. So what's the difference between an invasive species and a native species? Hold up, I I, I said that wrong. What's the difference between an archaeologist and a grave robber? Mm, time just time mm -hmm. just time i mean since i just finished uh listening to a book called 1491 and the follow-up book to that 1493 and they talk about um what pre-columbian north and south america was was kind of like they talk about you know the the smallpox malaria and yellow fever plagues that wiped out 95 ish percent of mm -hmm. north and south america population indigenous population um, but 1493 really talks a lot about 
you know, the Columbian exchange and the exchange of a previously unknown species across oceans and being introduced in the novel environments. And I mean, okay, cattle are invasive species. There you go. Yep. Cattle are invasive species on a North American continent. Horses are an invasive species on the North American continent. Sheep, guess what? Invasive species. Pigs, invasive species. Chicken, invasive species. So everything we eat in North America is a freaking invasive species. But we don't call them that. We just call them food. So the whole invasive versus native species argument, like... let's let's move on from that okay these plants are here they are established like you know we've we've got old world blue stems are you know horrible problem down in texas oklahoma starting to creep up into kansas you can't get rid of them like you just you cannot spray you can spray that stuff to dead dirt three years in a row three times a year and it'll come back Mm -hmm. so let's figure out how to use it folks yeah you know i mean well i mean i like to think that on some level, I am, uh, I am a source. I, I am the source for making use of invasive species because uh, we've talked about it before. Like, I mean, this Cut property through. is, yeah, is littered with uh, just vast swaths of forest that have been eaten by this kudzu vine, which is terribly like if you want to use the term invasive, probably in its truest form, because, uh, or as I think it's typically intended to mean, you know, it demolishes a, an existing ecosystem. Uh, and, you know, it, it will overrun it. And so, you know, where, where you used to have biodiversity, now you have monocrop, you know, kudzu. And so in that sense, it is a problem. Um, and, you know, we graze the heck out of it. And again, have a lot of people, cows eat kudzu? I thought goats would. I didn't know cows would. And that's obviously mostly people who have no idea how a rumen works. <laughs> but, uh, you, you know, it's each their own. But I think that ultimately, I agree with you. We We tend to lean way too far into the invasives. There's really very few truly invasive species uh, that I can think of. One, especially around here, uh, kudzu being one, uh, Bradford pear being another, uh, is a, yeah. a blight on, you know, the Southeast, in my opinion. Um, however, like all of it can be mitigated through proper ecosystem management. Uh, I, you know, I, I won't say that it can be fully deleted, but it all can be managed. Um, and that eventually, right there, yeah. that's the key. That's mm-hmm. the key. It, these species we consider invaders or invasive, habitat converting, ecosystem, you know, biome converting. Like, uh, yeah. you know, I, you, you've heard me talk about eastern red cedar trees going to take over yep. the plane. Like, yep. it's going to happen. We can control that one pretty easy with a match. Yep. You know, like, there's a lot of things that conventional wisdom conventional ag would want to pull out and would want to pull out you know a, a tool made of steel you know a tractor yeah. a, a a toad implement a bulldozer an excavator or pull out a jug yep brought to you spray, by bear yep and they don't solve problems they just kick a can down mm-hmm. the road and create a situation that you have to keep paying for keep paying for treatment 
Yeah. I'm not in the business of of selling treatment, right? Well, I mean, all you're making is selling prevention. All we're talking about is the agricultural equivalent to the modern healthcare debacle, you know, which is funny because the same people own both interests, you know, like you, you have big pharma, which owns big ag, like, and the whole, the whole system we have is predicated upon, you know, linear thinking, non-holistic thinking. And, we would rather address symptoms over and over and over and over and over and over again, rather than back up and realize, Hey, we may have to change something, but a few small changes may completely eradicate the, all of this in a matter of a very short window of time. And, and it's because we've become a convenience culture. And I think ag um, as a whole is just as, if not more so guilty of that, than, you know, the people that just go eat McDonald's every day because it's convenient, um, you know, because like you said, we've been indoctrinated into this like, oh, well, I've got, you know, a, a weed, weed problem. Well, I just need to go out there and spray. Uh, you know, I said some something, I can't remember who it was I was talking to, to the other day and uh, said something to me about spraying, spraying a field. And I said, how many years in a row have you sprayed that field? It's kind of like the question is almost like the question didn't register. Like, <laughs> like I mean, like, we, that, well, we've sprayed it. I don't, you know, I don't know a lot of probably 25 years or more. And I said, and you still do it every year. You don't, like, you don't anticipate that, that, that killing that, those weeds, eventually they don't repopulate. Eventually you wouldn't have weeds. Is that right? You know, you would think that. <laughs> <laughs> so you think and so it, uh, that's just the mentality that like i think a lot of people whether you're in ag or whether you're not we're all guilty as human beings of living in our own little paradigms and we put ourselves in our own neat little boxes and just think that that's our existence and that's all there is and we never and like you have to ha- let somebody peel that box off of you. So you look around your left and your right and all of a sudden that box isn't there anymore. And you're like, Oh God, like I, I could have really been doing things a lot differently. Um, and I think we're headed there. I, I definitely think, I know um, you told me I had to listen to your podcast with Hobbs before I did this I, one. So like it's fresh in my not. mind. I, that yeah, was yes, you did. Verbatim. <laughs> you said, you said you got to listen to that one. And I intended to listen to it anyway. So it wouldn't have mattered, but uh it, that one's ringing fresh in my mind. And I, honest to God, Brian, when I was listening to that podcast, I was like, dad, come. I was like, I, I feel like I'm just going to be a, a repetitive uh, repetition of that entire podcast. <laughs> I was like, I, I should have just been on that one with you guys. Um, so y'all covered some good ground on that one. Um, but yeah, one of these just, days, we're all going to get together. Yeah. One of these well, days. I just, I don't want to lose the point. And the point I was going to make is we, we, with the extension of the free flow of information and how, like how much easier it is to share information with people. Now, I do believe that we are headed uh, to a, a, to a better place, if you will, as long as it doesn't become completely co-opted, which that's also an option as well. So. Yeah. Yeah. That's. I'm not sure I can share your faith. (laughs) 
I think that if we're going to be moving towards a better place, mm-hmm. it's up to us to promote our local communities to build the better place because yes. nobody's going to build it for us. Absolutely. I, and, I mean, I have a lot of political conversations with people because for some reason people gravitate that to to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, I mean, it interests me. I won't lie. It's like, I, but I always tell people, it's like, you know, we do so much complaining and spend so many countless hours worrying about who's going to be the head of the federal government or what the federal government has done. I was like, and meanwhile, in my own backyard, my own county, they tripled our tax base this year in one year. You know, like, and nobody got hung. Nobody's house got burned down. Nobody, like, you know, th- there, there was no none of this. There were no yeah, riots in front of the courthouse. Yeah, the court, the courthouse didn't even have a picket sign in front of it. You know, like, there, we have gotten conditioned to lying down and taking it. And that is very dangerous. Um, you know, I was in a conversation with my excavator uh, operator about this very thing. And he's like, well, you know, what can you do except just pay it? And that I think that, and I've also had this conversation with people, when you live the lifestyle that you and I do, uh, we're kind of the last remnant of people that truly have a grasp on freedom. Uh, and somebody I, says, who will build the roads? Like, mm-hmm. let me fucking explain it to you. <laughs> let me explain it to you because I maintain 12 and a half miles, miles of roads on my property. Yeah. We'll talk about who will build the roads. The roads. That's what I'm saying. It's like the people. I hate to use that phrase because like people just blanket statements like that don't don't necessarily paint the best picture. But by and large, we have you know this, we've been conditioned uh, as a as a civilization to be peons or cogs in the wheel and not question authority not you know go along to get along and if you step out of that line uh more than your your fear of repercussion is greater than the detriment you will suffer in silence and so i i think that for those of us who still live on the land work on the land and are not subservient to the corporate structure um still have this notion. And I think that's why like that, I guess you call it like the libertarian-esque, you know, anarchist, whatever you want to call it, vein runs kind of heavily in the ranching community is, you know, we still understand what it means to fend for our own and to take care of ourselves and not have, not be reliant upon other people. Um, I mean, so anyway, I'm the road maintenance department. (laughs) I'm the water department. I'm the sanitation department. You understand personal responsibility. And that like, that's something that most people have been conditioned to be afraid of. And and so I always tell people like, you know, it, my wife would kill me if she knew I was saying this on a recording, but I told one time I told her, I was like, it's okay. No, (laughs) sure. Sure, I won't get I won't get texted this snippet like you know right after this podcast gets released. Um, I told her 
this was after we had lived here probably two, three years. Um, I said, you know, I, I don't, I'm not scared to go to jail anymore. It was like I had had this revelation of, you know, not that I'm like out there doing things, um, you know, that would lend me behind bars anyway. But I was like, I, I never, it's like I never realized that there was this latent subconscious fear that I'd always lived with of like, oh my gosh, I can't, like, I could never be arrested because, you know, oh my God, if I got arrested, I would lose my job, which means I would lose my house, which means I would lose my, you know, like all this like stuff that was just back there, just living in the background and you don't, you know, and that's that operant conditioning that you don't even know you've been a part of. And when that glass wall finally, you know, breaks and you realize like, oh, like, well, if I got thrown in the tank, in the drunk tank, you know, somebody comes and gets me. Well, hope the cows didn't get out over, you know, overnight. Like it, you, all of a sudden, like that fear uh, dichotomy shifts. You get to the like, point in life where jail would be a vacation. <laughs> <laughs> you said it best. Three squares a day. You know, it's like, and I don't have to go chase, you know, ranging cows. Like, okay, that it might not be too bad. No, I don't have to be outside <laughs> in the blazing sun and freezing cold. Yeah, it's like now, now maybe if they reinstitute the chain gang, I mean, sure, that might that sounds like a day in the life, but uh, yeah, but still, no, I I say that like half jokingly, but half serious in the sense that we are in order for the quote unquote regenerative movement to thrive two things have to happen the populace the general populace has to support it and currently that we are in no position to say that we are moving towards that i think we we are but we have an increasing rate of acceptance we do and that's and that's a good thing we're we're past the point where it can be killed by the marketplace Mm -hmm. It is is taken hold in the marketplace and consumers have accepting it and more consumers every day are mm-hmm. accepting it. The, the one time. thing else, well, the one thing that I fear in that is that we are very clearly, and I've seen this in our own business and a bunch of other people that I'm friends with, uh, we'll get into the, the grass-fed cooperative here in a little bit, like got other friends in other parts of the country that are doing the same thing as me. And pretty much everybody is seeing this like curve where like sales were here last year and they aren't meeting that expectation this year. Uh, you know, like they're and it's very obvious to anybody with eyes that it's because of the economy and what's going on in the world. Like people and we have a very short memory too. you know, like if this had been uh, three years ago, I, I couldn't sell enough beef. If I had the kill dates, I could kill everything and everybody be buying it because guess what? You couldn't buy it at the grocery store and everybody right. was scared out of their mind. Um, and nobody was people, doing it. Correct. And, and I think that the acceptance level is going up. However, the compen- the accurate compensation, and me and you have talked about this before, not in a podcast, uh, for our labor um, is not matching up with what Tyson can sell imported beef for. And the consumer still has no real idea that when they buy cheap beef, there's a very large percentage chance that they're not eating beef that was raised here. 
because that beef got shipped to somewhere else, to a different country, who will pay the premium for American beef, or it went to a premium steakhouse or, you know, somewhere where you would pay naturally pay more for said beef anyway and not have the conscious structure of, oh, well, I'm not going to pay $8 a pound for ground beef. Uh, you know, whereas as we have seen, though, the commodity model, which is super reliant on inputs and those inputs aren't getting any cheaper, number one of which being labor, but as everything creeps up, that beef price has steadily gone up. And we, I do think there's a break at some point where I don't know if we get there in the next year. I don't know if we get there in the next 10. But I do think eventually what is considered now astronomically high prices for my beef will be the same price or cheaper than what you can buy it for in the store. I Yes. So I I take the Stockman grass farmer mm-hmm. and I guess it, it showed up while I was gone. Do you take SGF? I, they're, they're trying to get me to uh, pony back up for it. I've, I've gotten it the last three years and I just didn't resubscribe this year. I, I think it's a worthwhile thing. Like mm-hmm. is every issue jam packed with information relevant to me? Yeah. No, but yeah. every once in a while, there's some really great nuggets. And mm-hmm. um, I wish I had it down here in front of me. I had it down here, and then I took it upstairs to read it. Like yeah. I don't know before we, you know, about an hour before we started, and yeah. didn't read it back. But there's Jim Garrish wrote a great article about um, about the death of cowboy culture, mm-hmm. and he was contrasting what it cost in 1973 to what it cost in 2023 because. And, and he he drew parallels between those two years because they were both very good, very good times for calves. I mean, yes. great calf market. Mm-hmm. And the moral of the story was our labor costs for day labor have gone up roughly four times faster than the price of calves. Yep. And, you know, I've, I've had discussions with some of my friends that, you know, do day work. I, I think I even had a couple here on the podcast, like, in 2009, I could hire day help for a buck and a quarter, buck and a half a day, 125 to $150 a day. Okay. Yeah. And that's, it doesn't matter if they show up and do an hour of work, rope one cow, or were there eight hours dragging calves? Like yeah. day rates, day rate. And yeah. that's, that's generally how it works here. Mm-hmm. So 2018, 2019, 150 bucks. No problem. Yeah. 2020 hits, 2021, 2022, last year. I wouldn't, I wouldn't even consider less than $250. I wouldn't even consider offering less than $250 for day for a day rate. Yeah. Cause you got to consider before that guy even shows up, he's been working for an hour and a half to two hours. Yep. And when he leaves, he's got another hour and a half to two hours to care mm-hmm. for that horse and his equipment. When he gets home, Yep. he's got windshield time. Yep. So if he's there for an hour, you need to pay the man for a half a day. Yeah. At minimum. So, so when, when it costs you $250 to hire one guy for a day, mm-hmm. you know, you really got to think about those costs and, you know, if you're not hiring day help, if you're hiring like a position cowboy, yeah, that guy's got a, you know, he's got already upfront 120 to $150,000 worth of equipment, truck, trailer, horses, tack and gear. Before he's even got a place to live, he's got one hundred twenty to one hundred fifty thousand dollars in gear. 
that he's got to maintain every year and pay taxes on. Mm-hmm. You know, since the horse lover people got all the horse kill plants shut down and the price of horses yeah. is freaking skyrocketed out of control. Yep. You know, used to be you could buy a decent ranch horse for thirty five hundred or five grand, and now good luck finding one for ten. Yeah, I was gonna say. So you know, costs are just spiraling upwards out of control. For labor, I mean, land inputs, which you touched on, yeah, and and pickups. I mean, I know you. Do, I know you don't need a feed truck, but if you did, you'd have you'd, it'd be sixty thousand dollars. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that the the big one that we'll, we'll, we'll glance on that you mentioned is land. And like, I don't even consider, so I, I have a customer of mine who is in the process of purchasing a kid's camp, summer camp that is about 45 minutes South of here. Um, he's been a beef customer of mine, found me on TikTok three years ago, been a good customer of mine. Great guy. Um, and his dream has always been to own a summer camp, like a kid's summer camp. And well, he texted me the other day and told me, Hey, like we're, we're going to go under contract for this piece of property. And he was like, you know, how, how did he phrase the question? It was basically how many acres um, does a cow eat in a day? Which, which tells, which tells you everything you should know. I was like, um, in my environment, I'm like, well, you know, you work on acres per year. Like, it's like, uh, you know, and so I told, you know, we ended up having this conversation. Um, and he ended up telling me, he's like, well, I don't really want to have cattle on the property like that I own. He goes, I just want to lease it. How much would lease go for? Well, that's a uh, different question, sir. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I was like, well, uh, you know, and I told him, I was like, you know, you can look up USDA records, all that. I was like, the average uh, pasture in this part of Georgia goes for around 26 bucks. And he was like, oh, my God, I thought it would be like 10 times higher than that. And I was like, no. I was like, I go, how much do you think a cow's worth? And his response was, well, I figured the average uh, producer makes, you know, 25 to 30 percent on a $5,000 cow. And I said, try selling cows for 500 bucks at the sale barn and tell me how that works for you. I was like, but this is somebody that has no idea, like no clue about ag, other than like some TikTok videos he's watched of mine, uh, does like is not in that system. But it really was enlightening to me to realize this is the norm. This is what most the general populace believes that when they see the guy driving a you know 2021 f-350 king ranch pulling a you know a 30-foot gooseneck trailer full of cattle they think they think that load of fat cattle is worth you know 10 grand five ten grand a pop and because they have this yellowstone mentality uh, of what being a rancher, being a landowner is, and the reality is just couldn't be further from the truth. Um, and, and that doesn't matter. Like whether you're in on the corporate big ag side of things, you know, on a, on a small feed lot, whatever, or whether you're on the, you know, hyper regenerative, if you're Hobbs Marjorie, like, you know, it's, uh, 
it doesn't matter. Like the the reality of the paradigm we all exist in uh, inside the United States is all of our costs are going through the roof. And yeah, it might be a good year for cattle this year, you know, as far as the commodity market's concerned. But, you know, I think last time we did this recording, me and you talked about like the break even on a pound of ground beef. And I think when we talked last time, it was six, like we kind of came around like six bucks a pound was pretty much your like break even for cold cow ground beef. If you were going to really factor in all of your real costs. And, and if you wanted to make like a few actual dollars, like correct. Like if you, if you wanted to say like, and when I say break even, I mean, all costs are covered, including my labor, all of that. Like, so, so yes, I would be getting paid in that, but I'm just paying my, what I consider to be my laborious salary. You know, I pay myself, like I get paid out of the business if we are profitable but I need to also get paid enough to like know that I didn't go out there and move a bunch of fences and move a bunch of cows all year to do nothing, you know, for right. to not make anything. So like, that's what I view as like, okay, costs are covered $6 a pound. Well, that was last year. This year, I, I'm literally thinking that that's probably going to look closer to like $758 a pound to break even, you know, it's like, uh, but, and largely due to circling back, our tax base just tripled and nobody in this area is full-time in ag anymore. Or, and I say nobody colloquially, like, you know, obviously there's a few of us, but not many, not enough to make a real voice. And people don't realize like property taxation basically is an incentivize an incentivization is that even a word it's incentivizing for you to to sell your land you know because it's based upon what the land is valued at at retail but okay and so- there, some states have different laws that like curtail that we don't um which is funny because ag is the number one uh, business in the state of Georgia, and, and we don't do a very good job of protecting our <laughs> producers, I guess. But uh, anyway, I, I just think that the as the costs continue to climb, and the earning power of the consumer, because we talk a lot. Let, let's be honest, we talk a whole heck of a lot in regenerative ag, and you are one of the world's worst <laughs> talking about like carbon credits and all this stuff that is not, it's applicable to some people, not applicable to all producers. Uh, And and I think that gets held out a lot of times. It's like the carrot on the end of the stick, but like nobody kind of like when Hobbs talked to you about like, what if somebody was going to send you $20 million? And like when he was leading up to that in y'all's talk, the whole time I was sitting there thinking, I'm like, God dang, nobody's approached me with like a couple million (laughs) bucks to invest. You know, it's like, I like to think I've got a pretty broad reach and nobody, nobody said anything to me about, uh, you know, wanting to invest in this opportunity. Um, hey, Michael, what would you do yeah. if I gave you $20 million right now? Take a deep breath. Um, yeah, I wasn't ready for that question either. Yeah, no, I mean, legitimately, <laughs> like, and I didn't expect you to be, but it, I think that ultimately what is happening in our culture is like we are all being suppressed. So y'all talked a lot about 
um, you know, capitalism and and the syst- economic systems that we're under and all of that. Like, I kind of consider myself to be like a utilitarian capitalist. Um, I don't know if that's a real thing or if I just made it up, but like, you know, utilitarianism, as I understand it, is what does the most good for the most amount of people over the longest period of time. Ergo, like, yeah, so ergo, I am a capitalist. I believe capitalism works. I don't think we've lived under capitalism for, you know, minimally 40 years, uh, minimally. And and now we're reaping what we sowed in allowing the uh, cronyism to fester. But now we see that, like, in regenerative ag, we beat the war drum on we're going to save the world, you know, and we try to tie it back into carbon credits. But what we're actually doing by doing that is we're chasing those big industry players, those big industry dollars, and we're leaving behind the the consumers. And we ignore a lot of times we ignore the consumers. Uh, And that's why, like, I don't know, I don't I don't have the answers here. I'm literally just posing more or less questions is like, I don't know what we do to bridge that gap as the large scale, the consumer base loses buying power and our prices have to go up so that we can remain in business. Like that squeeze, uh, you know, without radical mindset change in the in the consumer base to understand the like a the the tricks that have been played on them in the past, b you know the potential health benefits, but c the economic implications of yeah maybe paying a little bit more, but that money stays in your community or stays in your region. And, and gets reinvested there. Um, you know, I think the decentralization of the food system, but also the decentralization of the consumer marketplace is going to be what has to happen for this to really eventually for uh, David to slay Goliath, if you want to frame it that way. Okay. So I, I appreciate your thoughts. Yeah. And Consumers buying power, buying patterns are changing. You know, we've yes. seen that over the last three years. And I, that, that's a pattern that's going to continue. Mm-hmm. The thing is, though, as, you know, the position you and I are in, we're, you know, we're basically trained to sell grass. Mm-hmm. Okay. And we're, we're selling into a marketplace where it's very difficult to differentiate our product from a commodity product. So the way we have to do that is selling our story. But okay, now here's the rub. Okay. You and I are trying to sell grass direct to consumer and not be a part of this, you know, existing commodity system that's basically a, it, it's a shell game to redistribute yeah. federal tax dollars and federal subsidies to big multinational yeah. corporations. It's not handouts to farmers. Like the yeah. farm bill they're talking about, I think they're <laughs> I, I think the farm bill they're talking about is over a trillion dollars and it's like over 82% of it is snap benefits. Yeah. I was going to say it's like, it's, it's calling it a farm bill is wrong. <laughs> when they started allowing snap benefits to be spent on sugary drinks, on ultra processed food, like in my opinion, snap benefits should be for a bag of wheat, a mm-hmm. jug of milk, a tub yeah. of lard, cheese butter like 
bare ingredients. Essentials. Yeah. Like fucking ingredients. Yeah. Like, like that's cook. Like you gotta cook that stuff. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yep. I mean, if you want free food, you gotta put in a little bit of work to to turn it into something that, you know, into a meal. Like you yeah. shouldn't be able to go buy Stouffer's lasagna and Mountain Dew mm-hmm. at Doritos and Kit Kats on your damn snap card. Like mm-hmm. that's my opinion. If you want to come after me, redhillsrancher at gmail.com. I've got thick skin. <laughs> Bring it on. Yeah. Okay. So we have to compete in the marketplace on price against commodity product that's subsidized. Mm-hmm. Now, your your ranch isn't big enough for me to try to get you a carbon contract. So I'm not going to waste my breath. Yes. There'll be a day for you. Okay. Yeah. Your day's coming. Mm-hmm. Carbon. I mean, like we could probably have a, we could probably have a three hour debate and not get anywhere about whether or not carbon credits actually do a damn thing. Mm-hmm. Here's the point. People want to throw money at guys like you and me for managing land the right way. Okay. I, I think it's worth, yeah, it's worthwhile in that. I, mean, I, I don't throw, throw the ecological implications uh, or the marketed ecological implications out the window. The real world implications are definitely worth, you know, worth it for sure. And it's, it, I don't think it's necessarily all like a ruse or anything like that. It's just that uh, I think, you know, I, like you and Hobbs both talk about like, well, beef is like Hobbs likes to call it a waste product. I call it a byproduct. He calls it a waste product uh, to keep his mindset right. Um, I think I used I, one word. He used the other. Then on, yeah. like we got an art. Then like somebody posted on LinkedIn, and he was like, "No, I said that." And I'm like, "Wait a minute." Yeah. I went back and read the transcript. I'm like, "Okay, I, okay. I see what well, I see what's going on here." Anyway, I, yeah. but but byproduct waste, thing product, is, same thing. Yeah, it, and it's just about what what carrot you're chasing and and for those who have the ability to chase the carbon credits like such as yourself like i don't see that as wrong and i'm not throwing shade at you whatever i'm just saying like for people like me who that's not an option that's not a viable option right now that's not a means by which i can get funds my other like i can't ignore the customer base so in other words I can't go out and just buy a pile of, you know, Corianni cattle um, that I can just, you know, because they're so small, I can get so many of them uh, and up my stocking rate so high and just cross them with Mashonas so I can just increase their efficiency even more and basically effectively do what Hobbs is doing because that's the carrot he's chasing and what he's doing fits that end. Um, However, I know that like, on my side of the spectrum, I still have to chase a consumer, largely of which is uneducated, but willing. Like the majority of my customers are not people that, well, I've been buying whole beef my whole life. And like, you know, I just decided I really wanted to try, you know, to switch to grass fed. Uh, you know, like, no, the majority of my customer base is I've never bought beef this way before. And I've never bought the like this kind of beef before. And you know, and you have to hold their hand and walk them through it. And, you know, I've had multiple people, you know, when I started, had really small frame cows. I still have pretty small frame cows, um, you know, like, and they get steaks and they're like, hey, these are really small. 
And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> you know, cause, cause they're real <laughs> and they fit our environment and they work. So like, uh, I think it's a baby bathwater situation where like, you can't just say like, oh, we're, we're here to save the planet. And that's all that matters. And if we get some beef out of that game in the process, cool, we'll give it away. Because it ignores the people. And I realize this is kind of a political conversation. But it's like it ignores the people that still have to make a living on that product. They have okay. to sell their grass through that medium. Uh, much in the same way that it's the same sense as, and I've said this to you before, you know, my biggest competitor is the guy down the road who owns, you know, a contracting business, but has 20 cows that are a hobby and sells beef to all his friends and family and anybody else that calls him up. And yeah. And he sells it for $3 a pound. You know, it's like, I, you know, that's not paying his bills and he doesn't need it to, it's a fun hobby for him. And he is under the illusion he's making money. Um, <laughs> There's also something to be said about livestock can also be a huge tax shelter. Mm-hmm. You know, I not going to name any names. No. Let's just say I have a friend that has, for example, a construction company mm-hmm. and you know, some grass and some cows. And, uh, you know, if the choice is paying a hundred, you know, taxes on $120,000 of business profit or moving that over and spending that, on his cow yeah. herd. Yep. You know, by buying a new feed truck or buying, you know, a really high dollar bull or buying that yeah. nice shiny shoot every year. Yeah. You know, that I think there's a lot of guy there's there's some whales like that mm-hmm. that you know that don't care that they're just using their cows and their ranch as a tax I, write-off. I as, would as, actually as make I would make the argument, well, it's not really an argument, it's a it's in a continuation of your point that that has become probably by and large the norm in this country when you're talking about large-scale operations because i know like a couple of guys that i met um in when i went to ranching for profit in montana it's like they they were ranch managers of big big places um out there that were owned by absentee landowners from california with big money and their goal like their their goal is not to make money their goal is to lose money because they're, you know, the owners are making massive amounts of money somewhere else doing something else. And they're using it ergo as a tax shelter. <laughs> and so that, that to me, uh, you know, there's, that's a different bridge to cross a uh, different problem for a different day. And I that's fine until they yeah. buy the ranch next to you and double your property tax basis. Bingo. You know, so just, and that's basically what's happened here is we've had lots of very wealthy people. And I'm talking about wealth with that starts with B's instead of M's, um, you know, come in. We had the C, now CEO of UPS bought a spread uh, south of us. Uh, we had a billionaire from Texas come. I don't know what how they made their money buy a ranch less than a mile from us that was friends with the CP, CEO of UPS. Uh, you know, it's like once the word gets out, it's like, hey, we found this great little undiscovered spot here. You know, the, when the money starts to move in, I, 
especially when you live in a, a mismanaged rural community, which I would venture to say most rural communities probably are pretty badly mismanaged. Show me a community that's <laughs> not mismanaged, please. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, and and money starts to move in there, then they start seeing dollar signs that they haven't seen before. And, and so all of a sudden it's like they turn they turn into full-fledged thieves um, thinking that they're going to get their piece off of these new rich folks moving in. And in reality, all they do is just encourage all the people that are actually productive, you know, people that have been living there for generations or even somebody like me, who's first generation, who are actually trying to make a living on the land, you're just incentivizing us to sell our land to that rich person because they don't give a rip about, you know, all oh, the taxes tripled. Oh, okay. Add another zero to that check. Send it in. I'll write yeah. that off. <laughs> you know, it's like, uh, and whereas like people like us, it's like, okay, uh, you know, when your taxes go from, you know, $15,000 a year to 45. All of a sudden, you know, I just talked earlier about like that amount of money that I pay myself for my labor, you know, that money's got to come from somewhere. And that's the only pot left that's not spoken for. That's, it's yeah. not like you can jack up your prices 15% on your No, on your I mean, I, yeah, exactly. A product that's already being sold at a premium. You know, yeah. it's, not, it's not like I'm out here, I always use the term, like I'm not selling Kias, I'm selling Porsches. You know, so you know it doesn't have mass market appeal uh, because most people are going to you know scoff at the price, um, and that's okay. That's their they, but they also don't realize the conditioning that's gone on uh, both at the retail level and the wholesale level to get you know at the retail level the beef they're buying in the grocery store is you know between forty and fifty percent water, um, and, and so. Shocking. Ours isn't like that. And then B, at the wholesale level, like I said before, they don't they don't know where anything about that beef they're buying. They don't know where it came from. And by and large, it's cheap imported beef that's run through a grinder to to subsidize, uh, you know, their desire for cheap food. And so, like, that's not the customer I'm chasing. And then, like, I'm I'm fine with that. It's just the lack of awareness is I feel like leading us down a path of I won't say crisis uh but I, I don't you know I can be hopeful on one end and on the other end I, it's like I, I feel like I, we're stretched between always feeling like you know tomorrow could be the day that like it lights off and we're just like all of a sudden we got more orders and we know what to do with uh and you know and everything just takes off and it and you have and before you know it like flip a switch and in three years we're white oak pastures <laughs> but on the flip side of that um you know it, you are you feel like you're walking the tightrope of like hey like next week um you know when the bills come due uh, yeah, well, we might have to load up some cattle and haul them off and liquidate them just so we can make it. You know, I, if, if, I know how that so, feels, Michael. Yeah, I've, I've been uh, there in the last twelve months, buddy. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's, and it's rough, and so it, it's rough also psychologically in the context of the the niche we live in, me and you, um, where you see this 
influx of big capital, um, you know, car, whether it's carbon credits, whether it's, uh, you know, whether it is people that have mega funds going out and wanting to be, you know, play John Wayne on the weekends and they just want somebody to manage their place, but they want it managed, you know, holistically. They want, they want to be a regenerative operation because they saw a YouTube video of Alan Savory a couple of years ago talking about, you know, this one thing about desertification and they think like that's what they really want. And, and so like there's opportunities that exist out there, but for people that are trying to make their own way in a decentralized form, like going at that and especially going at it alone is daunting and really scary. So Okay, so the big money guys that want to come buy a ranch so they can play cowboy on the weekend, you know, mm-hmm. so they can play Yellowstone on the weekend. Yeah. Great. You want it managed holistically because you watched now the Savior video a couple years ago. I think yeah. it's probably 10 million views by now. Yeah. Great. You don't care if it makes money. Great. Where are you going to find a manager? Mm-hmm. Because that takes a guy like you, me, Hobbs. Mm-hmm. Where are you going to find those guys? Like, you're going to have to make me a pretty good offer to get me off this ranch and get me yeah, to go well, somewhere else and start a new project. My my point exactly is uh, to get the expertise level that they want. They like, if that's truly an opportunity that exists, and I'm not saying that those are everywhere. I'm just saying, I know that bound to exist either yep. now or in the future. And I, I live in the same headspace as you. It's like, okay, I've spent a, I've spent over a decade of my life, um, you know, learning what I now know. And I've spent hundreds of thousands of dollars in mistakes that I've made <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, uh, that I can avoid. That's called education. Uh, yes. And it's like, so again, if that's something somebody wanted, the again, it's the exact same principle I use when pricing our beef is because that's the same thing. It's like, you're buying my expertise. You're not buying, uh, you know, if you want Joe Schmo that knows knows how to saddle a horse and make sure a barbed wire fence isn't broken, cool. You can find those for a dime a dozen and he'll probably take take the job for, you know, $45,000 a year plus a house. Like, cool, have at it. But if you want somebody- dollars a day. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or, you know- but if you want somebody that that carries the the breadth of knowledge to truly transform ecosystems, that's not cheap. And it's a short list, too. It's a very short list. Well, and mainly due to the fact that even though we are very forward thinking people, we're still of the uh, I guess the ranching culture and the fact that we are exceptionally stubborn people uh, i don't know this, who you're talking about <laughs> you know like it's kind of goes back to that whole like you know i've staked my claim and you know come hell or high water like i'll die here before you you know you pull me off of this place and you know i told my wife this the other day because you know we, we live a i don't really talk about my personal life at all um, especially not on social media, but um, we're we're pretty hippie, you know, in the way that's what I call it. That's my, you know, my colloquialism for 
the way we live. Crunchy is like the the uh, modern terminology for that. What uh, what is that? What does that mean anyway? So it's basic for, the, for my best understanding. Uh, because I'm just a rancher, right? Like, <laughs> um, for my best understanding, it's basically people that, uh, you know, like organic food, uh, pretty uh, anti-pharmaceuticals, pretty holistic, you know, like to get your feet in the dirt. Uh, so, you know, what what in 1970 would have definitely been considered a dirty hippie? Uh, okay. You know, minus now they the just call them crunchy. Yeah, minus, minus the free love, you know, it's a little more family values oriented. Uh, <laughs> you know, um, it's kind of a modern or uh, postmodern. Oh, it's the seventies without LSD. Yeah, pretty much, and chickens. Okay. You know, it's like the modern homesteader-ish movement is fairly represent. It's homeschool oriented. You know, bucking the system. Yeah, it's it's for lack of better terms, it's people that are fairly well aligned with our values for yeah. the most part. Um, just, the only, we don't know it yet. <laughs> correct. The, the only contradiction being most of them haven't come to the realization that they can't be self-sufficient yet and that they can't go buy 10 acres. And this is a conversation me and you've had in the past. These are the people that drive the suburbanization of rural America. And they yeah. don't realize they're part of that problem. They, like Again, they're living in their paradigm of they're going to fix their own space for their own family. It's very introspective, uh, the mindset. It's not, whereas like, I feel like we have come to the realization that we're communal beings living in a ecosystem, not not simply like it does, your ecosystem doesn't stop at your fence line, right? Mm-hmm. Like, uh, yeah, it may in the sense of your neighbor may be a crap manager, and might be, you know, have grazing cows on dang near bare dirt and weeds. And so there's not a whole lot of biological life left. But you, that sphere of influence of not only you, but your management decisions still exists. And that you have to, you know, cooperate with your neighbors, with your community, blah, 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 blah. So anyway, I'm really rabbit traveling here. So like going back to Crunchy, uh, um, <laughs> So my wife lives more in the, um, yeah. Like how, okay, how crunchy are you? Are you guys raw milk crunchy? Yes, I have to go meet my raw milk lady after we finish filming this, so I give her my jars back because she won't even put the milk in plastic. Okay, like, like, um, so we're so, raw. So you're like you're that crunchy. You're microplastics and PFAS crunchy. Yeah, yeah, and like you know, like we filter the water. Uh, you know, because I, the chemicals in the water are bad. You know, we're they're putting chemicals yeah. in the water. Turn the freaking frogs gay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, he was proven. He was proven right. Uh, not, not, not saying everything he says is right, but uh, I wouldn't I, say that either. But, but the atrazine right on some disturbing shit. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so yeah, we're so we're pretty crunchy. So my wife, like for instance, uh, had a conversation with a. Um, mom so my my oldest started preschool yesterday and we were standing out in the parking lot after we dropped him off with one of his friends moms who just had a baby like two weeks ago Um, mine's born a little before that but um 
she was talking about formula and my wife who's very knowledgeable in, in that arena was talking about like hey she was asking her like what kind of formula would you use and my wife's like well i wouldn't use any brands that came out of the united states i'd only buy european brands um because you know there's so many chemicals that are put into the food system in in the u.s that are outlawed in europe uh that and blah 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 and so my wife and me kind of struck up a conversation after that about like she was talking about you know why does it just seem like everything i see about europe is they've they like they're more family centric like every restaurant has a playground or you know like they like for moms you know she's living in that headspace of being a, a new mom uh you know with three little kids and trying to uh you know manage life here where we don't live in a culture that really celebrates that or makes it easy um and so again, I told you, like, we're going to rehash a lot of shit y'all, you and Hobbs talked about. Because <laughs> right. uh, Hobbs talked about, you know, Europe and whatnot. And that's just been something that's been on our mind like, sh- lately. And uh, she was like, you know, would you consider moving to Europe? Um, and and I was like, you know, again, somebody have to make me a real good offer <laughs> to, to do that. Um, and I just think that the one thing and Hobbs mentioned this in y'all's interview, and it's just true is going back to what I said about, we are still a people that understands freedom is I, I feel like while the ranching community um, is the hardest working bunch of people that you'll ever meet. um, I think that's the one place where we, the new generation is learning that we can be the most well-lived people not simply be hearkened as like known for being like dawn to dusk you know toil the soil people but we could like through the regenerative uh, aspects of what we do we can actually regenerate our own physical well and mental spiritual well-being um, by making time that other people don't have the luxury of of making It's interesting you brought that up because we've had some of the same conversations in the last couple of years. Like, we don't like the path the country is on. Don't like the trajectory that our legislature and executive have this Mm -hmm. country on. Like, there's a lot of things not good. But where in the hell else are you going to go with this much freedom? I mean, there's nowhere else you could go in the world and enjoy the freedoms we have here. I mean... Mm -hmm disregard the second amendment like yeah. let's just talk about the first and having the freedom yeah. of speech there is nowhere else in the world where your speech is as protected as it is in the united states canada mm-hmm. try going to canada and calling somebody by the wrong name they throw your ass in jail yep i mean yep. you want to go there okay mm-hmm. fine you want to go to europe with no no real private property rights yeah and you know well i mean that that was the tax burdens that was okay. a continue. That was a continuation of the conversation we had. As I told my wife, I was like, you know, I think if I was going to leave the U.S. in uh, this all, of course, hypothetical because I'm not going to. But um, I think like South America would probably be the only place that I would even consider going, just simply because I feel that that they still have a very strong ranching culture, 
Um, they still societally share a lot of the same moral values, but politically, it's a cluster, right? I, I, like it, it's, it's not. Uh, there, there is no greener grass than where we currently stand. In my opinion, the the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence, but it mm -hmm. still needs to be mowed. Yep. It still needs her to perfect. Um, that's even better. Yeah. And, and that, that's the thing is like, we have the ability here to decentralize our own existence, or I should say federal, like, it's kind of federalism. Like we're kind of taking back federalism. I feel like um, culturally and I, the, both from the left and the right. Okay. So it's like, it's not, that's what's driven this like national divorce narrative that you hear. Um, it, that's not driven simply by a bunch of like pro Trump uh, Republicans who just don't want to, you know, deal with people with blue hair. It like, it's just as much the left wanting to disassociate from the rest of the country as it is the right, like being like, yeah, I'm kind of, it's kind of sick of this. And I think that as that narrative is driven forward, um, it leads us more towards decentralization, which ultimately is a good thing. Um, I don't think national divorce, like politically speaking, is a good thing. But I think that decentralization down to the non-political factors is obviously a good thing. Um, I think that we have, I think we have an opportunity, whether it's through cryptocurrency, which I don't, I fully admit I know almost nothing about, um, through Web3, uh, through AI, through all of these like these very fresh new almost dangerous technologies um to really reshape what it means to be a free citizen of this country and I, i'm not really sure what it looks like in the future you know like i i I go back and forth on that, like wh whether it's going to get better or whether it's going to, you know, one, you could ask me tomorrow and I might be like doom and gloom right now. I'm trying to see the positive. I, um, I feel like that a lot of days, like you could ask me tomorrow and I might have a answer 180 degrees out just because I heard something on the news that. Upset yeah. But I think that that is normal. I think that we obviously adapt to new information uh, that we're given and we operate within the context that we know. But I think the the current political system as it as we know it much mirrors the land ownership in this country in the fact that it's very old. Okay. And and the old political regimes will die off much like the old landowners will eventually die off. And all of that is going to exchange. It's like I watched a whole YouTube video the other day um, from this political analyst guy that I really like. Um, he does a lot of like alternate history stuff, and but he does a lot of political review as well. And he's talking about like we basically will look back on this period of history as the 30 years war. Like, like we look at the 30 years war. 
because like you know GWAT was based in global war on terror for those of you who don't know um right. <laughs> was uh was basically you know uh, 20 plus years and you could argue that it's still happening you know that and so like that, you wouldn't have to argue with me. I know it's yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe not as in full force as, as we once were, but uh, you know, like we're in a period of deep turmoil and conflict, but we aren't on the scale of a you know world war. Um, obviously, that could that could change tomorrow, and if it did, that would upend this a lot of this entire conversation. Um, I was going to say, I, I haven't really been paying attention to what's been going on in Ukraine, but I think they just, I think the Ukrainians are doing a pretty successful counteroffensive trying to throw the Russians out of the Donbass and the eastern parts of the country. Mm-hmm. Like, but I, I listen, do you listen to Peter Zihan at all? Uh, yeah, I do. I, I haven't, uh, I haven't caught any of his stuff in the last couple of days, but I do try to yeah. stay current and yeah, and what he's saying. I, I try to keep up with him. Uh, a good bit he, he's, he's pretty well informed um and he said something about that the other day that i, I well it was the uh you know how that last year they came to an agreement that ukraine was still going to be able to export all of their wheat right and whatnot and that just got revoked like they Not just, just revoked the russians yeah, blew up the grain terminals terminal yeah correct it's uh like well, when Russia got, like breaks a contract, they don't do it lightly. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it's not like they just that uh, Putin just called up, uh, you know, Zelensky and it's like, hey, by the way, yeah, we're not going to let you do that. <laughs> so it's a full uh, bird finger. So, I, you know, what's that going to do to commodity wheat prices? Um, you know, especially, especially with the drought that we had in the plains and the short wheat harvest, the state of Kansas, known mm-hmm. as the wheat state. Mm-hmm. Yes, we have to import wheat this year. Yeah, from Europe to meet the demands of the flour millers just in the state of Kansas. That's insane. Because don't y'all have the largest repository of of wheat? Um, I'm trying to remember the like wheat silos. I've I've read that but statistic a long time ago. I don't know if we store the most, but we have like at least the top three largest grain storage facilities so in least, the country are yeah. located in Kansas. Like mm-hmm. number one and number three, no, number one, two and three are in Hutchison and number one is just Southwest of Wichita. Yeah. And so mm-hmm. like that being a known fact and the fact that you still have to import wheat, uh, you know, that's pretty scary. Because obviously, when you start talking about importing wheat, well, okay, where's it going to come from? You yeah, know, like, and, and, and the thing is, right, the prices from the lack of Ukrainian exports, the short Kansas harvest or the short wheat belt harvest, those prices don't hit consumers until 24 or 25. Mm-hmm. Correct. You know, like the that, beef prices... It will go. It will go largely unnoticed by yep. the consumer until it's because, too late because of the lag in the commodity system, and there's so much volume that's got to work through that system, and and the way the contracting and deliveries work. Yeah, consumers are not going to feel price shocks on on goods derived from wheat until probably sometime into summer '24 or into '25. Mm-hmm. It's just the way it works, and by that time. 
nobody when when bread goes to six dollars a loaf yeah nobody's going to remember that the russians blew up the ukrainian grain silos in the summer of 2023 and that yeah. two years of prolonged drought caused short wheat harvest in the wheat belt yeah. nobody's yeah. going to remember that mm -mm. all they're going to do is scream the price of food the price of food the price of food and we need more snap benefits we need more subsidy gotta have yeah. cheap food and so the answer the answer to that is again picking up where you and Hobbs left off it is the the messaging through platforms such as ours trying to reach consumers in a real way to inform them like I'm not looking to become a news outlet right like I'm not trying to start an ag news TikTok but yeah. I try to to keep people abreast of you know, if something major happens, it the bigger issue to me is changing people's purchasing habits such that that becomes irrelevant. And because food security, you know, it kind of has two spectrums. You have the poor, you know, which is typically when you talk about foods in food insecurity, you know, that's when you're talking about poor people or especially urban neighborhoods where there's food deserts, all that kind of stuff. Uh, on the flip side of that, you have like just food security in general, which is no matter what your socioeconomic status is, you know, it's knowing that whether you go to the store or whether you call up somebody that there will be food available to you. And so that's another thing that I kind of factor in. And I don't, I might be wrong for doing this, but when I price my product, you know, I, I like to think like I always tell my customers, like, I'm not in this business to sell beef. You know, I'm in this business to make relationships. And I like to think that, you know, I'm effectively making, if I don't overextend myself, then I'm making relationships such that if God forbid, there is some sort of uh, food crisis, that those people who have bought from me before, all they have to do is pick up the phone. And they know their rancher. I got, I got you. Like you bought from me last year. I'll have you beef this year, you know, and, and, and to quell that and people, it's almost like you're selling insurance for lack of better terms, because most people don't value insurance. In fact, I mean, I don't, I think a lot of it's a racket, but most people don't value insurance until they need it, you know, until that thing has gone awry. Um, but again, I cannot service people in the region. Like I, 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 well, I could, I guess I shouldn't say that I could, I could make a way to do it, but I'm not trying to recreate uh, Omaha steaks, right? Like I don't want, if you're in California, I love you. Thanks for supporting me. I don't want to be your rancher because I, I know a guy in Southern rancher. California that would love to sell you. Yeah awesome pasture finished beef yeah like you know let, let, let's connect them with that person and let, and uh, so that Kevin at perennial pasture sell them beef from right there in southern california let's reduce our food miles let's have some more cooperation rather than competition well and that's and i wanted to talk to you about this um it's like and you you already are, are abreast of this but like we have started and i say we me and it's, I think there's seven of us 
um, off the top of my head, um, have started a cooperative, a grass-fed cooperative, um, because for a multitude of reasons, one being that, that uh, some of us have pretty decent social media followings and having the ability to market beef in places that we can't get to easily, cheaply, uh, effectively. So it was bridging that gap, uh, getting a, you know, a nationwide serviceable network of people. So you could at least get hook somebody up regionally, um, with, with a rancher. And the, and two is because there's all these other subservices out there, like Butcher Box, Good Ranchers, Moink, uh, you know, to name a few. I'm sure there's others. Farm they're all farm share. Yeah. Yeah. They're all middlemen. Right. Like they're all like they are a bottleneck through which to access customers. So, like, in other words, it's just the same corporate model rinsed and repeated where you're a link in the supply chain and all the profits flow uphill. And whereas the grass-fed cooperative, we're kind of the inverse of that in that we, the cooperative is merely a marketing catalyst to connect consumer to rancher. It's not to harbor the, all the, all the profits and to suck profits out of them. Um, and so I guess, you know, the road okay, to hell is but, paved, paved but, with good intentions, but <laughs> go ahead. So that's a great point about, you know, about extractive and, mm -hmm. you know, we don't, don't, I don't want to pick on any company last, yeah, last yeah. week's episode was with Henry from FarmShare. Mm -hmm. I think it's a cool platform. Not mm -hmm. sure if I'm going to sign up or not, but you know, I yeah. think it's a cool platform. I'm sure it's useful for people and it's, you know, I'm sure it's useful and so are the others. Yeah. Not to take anything away from what you're doing. Um, Okay. Uh, yeah. Profit. That's where we were. You know, that's, uh, that's kind of how the beef industry, the cattle industry ended up the way we ended up. I mean, 1973 was a high for cattle prices. Okay. And then by the late seventies, it was crashed because everybody wanted to get in when it was good. And the people that got in while it was good, they rode the crash. The people that were in when it was good, they rode it all the way up and were like, Hey, okay, this is pretty cool. And yeah. some of them survived the crash, right? And that crash gave us the checkoff. Yeah. That crash gave us NCBA and gave us the checkoff. Uh -huh. And since then, things haven't ever been as good. So people taking profit out, you know, that was, that was the beef producers. That was the cattle producers back in the late 70s, early 80s saying, we suck at marketing. We give up. Yeah. Somebody do it for us. It's worth a dollar a head. That's fine. And now here we are 40 years later, stuck with it. Mm -hmm. Okay. You know, I'm okay with the middleman taking a percentage. Oh, absolutely. No. I'm, I'm okay, not, with, them. Not, I'm okay yeah. with them taking some out of the revenue stream because they're doing me a valuable service. And to be fair, I haven't done diligence on all of these platforms. Oh, yeah. So some of this I'm talking out of my ass. But, you know, those platforms should exist for the purpose of taking the least amount of money out of that chain as possible and passing maximum benefit back to the producer. 
and the purpose of the platform is to connect producers to consumers. You know, and and okay, are you are, are you ready to are you ready to climb out of your ivory tower now, Brian? And face, and, and, and face the music of the fact that all of all of those companies, and I'm not saying they'll all end up there, but They're it's all hard to make money. What, they are, and there's nothing wrong with that. I'm in business to make money. So are you. Like that's what business is all about. Profit yep. is not the profit is not the evil in this conversation. It's the centralization of power that is the problem. And I'm sorry, but when I know nothing about the corporate structure of Bush Box, I know nothing about the corporate structure of Good Ranchers or any of these other whatever. But I know darn good and well that they're all set up to eventually have either some VC person or, you know, Kraft Foods come and stroke them a $2 billion check. And now they they just basically gut the system that they had built, ignore the customer base. It's the same thing that's happened with every IP with from Star Wars to Lord of the Rings to any, like whatever in the media side space where you have this intellectual property that has a massive following ergo it's worth a ton of money because people love it for specific reasons but now we're going to let the corporate interests buy it they're going to completely ignore those people that made it worth money to begin with so that they can do their own creative thing with it in hopes that it'll make billions of dollars for them and the same thing rinse and repeat over and over has happened in corporate America for many, many decades. And these businesses are set up such that you cannot tell me that anybody with a fiduciary responsibility to their investors would, and let's say their balance sheet is, you know, they're making, let's call it $10 million a year in profits. And the CEO of Kraft Foods calls up the CEO of, I'm going to pick on ButcherBox, and says, hey, we want to buy you out for, you know, $1.2 billion. It's a 10x, 10x return on a 10-year time horizon on your profits. If you have a fiduciary responsibility to your investors, you can't turn that deal down. And that's the way that this has worked time, you know, time immemorial. And that's the direction it's going to go. So you know where that you know where that's rooted? I would like to read in a lawsuit where the Dodge brothers sued Henry Ford Mm. 110 years ago because Henry Ford wanted to take corporate profits and give them back to the workers and improve workers quality of life. And the Dodge brothers owning about like seven, eight percent of Ford said, no, you know, your duty as a company is to return value to the shareholders, to profit to the shareholders. And that went to the Supreme Court. And that is yep. the law of the land. Yep. It is. I mean, and, so and when uh, we say again, we're in business to make money. Yeah. It's based on Ford V Dodge. Yep. Wow. And that, that, that's just 110 years of culture. Yeah. And, and and it's become so intertwined with who we are as a society that it's it's weird to think that now the quote unquote old labor left has probably more in common with Trump, um, you know, Trump <laughs> followers than they do with actual leftists. Um, yep. But not to digress back into politics too much, I, like staying on the corporate bandwagon, 
is the grass-fed cooperative, we tried to build a system or trying to build a system that is functionally immune to that corporate buyout structure. And so we, we insulate ourselves from that by being a conduit and attaching a consumer directly to a rancher and not just like a, hey, this uh, PR campaign kind of like meet this month's rancher that works with us. You know, like, no, like, how about you actually buy straight from that guy? Because now you know me. Like, yeah, you might have found me via some marketing that the grass-fed cooperative did, but it may have been Lance Picus, you know, the cowboy ninja that went on American Ninja Warrior and wore a grass-fed cooperative t-shirt or whatever. And you're like, hey, that's pretty cool. And then you looked, I followed that guy for years. And you feel like, oh, well, I live in Georgia. Oh, he, I, he, I could buy a dude from this guy. And now you know me. You don't have to go back through this middleman. You now know your rancher. And so that's kind of the uh, the model we wanted to use. And so anyway, that plus the decentralization aspect of it, of like we know that we have a broken food system uh, or a pinprick in the balloon is all it takes to completely deflate the balloon that we're currently standing on in terms of food security. And we want to do our part to help fix that. And, you know, with the people that want to support what we're doing ecologically, economically, um, and, you know, want the health benefits, want the, you know, whatever. Uh, I think more than anything, it's the, the reconnection. And so that's why I say, like, I, I, I tell people I'm, I mean, I'm in the relationships business. I'm not necessarily in the beef businesses because I see it time and time and again, people that are my customer that come to the ranch and they say, oh man, I would love to do this. And, <laughs> and you know, and, yeah. and because yeah, they, say that. yeah, because they really, what, so, you know, you know this about me, like I have a degree in communication. So it's like I I, see, I can see behind the veil of what they're actually saying. What they're saying is rooted in marketing. You know, they, they've been marketed through media, through Westerns, through um, Yellowstone. Know, Yellowstone. Yeah, Yellowstone, through all these things to have a romanticized, bucolic vision of what it means to work the land. But two is, and you know this, like we live in a very um, psychologically broken civilization uh, in that like man was not made to sit inside of a box under fluorescent lights, um, you know, whether typing on, staring at a screen and typing on a computer or attaching widget A to widget B um, for eight, 10, 12 hours a day. Um, And so I think a lot of people have a, run in the park mentality to agriculture you know they they think it's like oh it's like well i like to camp on the weekends and so like i would love to work outside and i would love to mess around with i like wildlife so i would love to work with uh livestock and you're like uh like oh yeah i like to camp i can go live off grid alaska yeah Uh, (laughs) it's not the same thing it's not the same thing And, and I always, my answer is always, you know, yeah, I'm living the dream, but a lot of days it looks like a nightmare, Um, you know, and and 
people don't really grasp that, but they ha- they're well-intentioned in what they mean. And what they mean is rooted in that loss of connection, because especially in the Southeast, everybody here is pretty much two to three generations removed from the farm. Everybody's family had a farm, whether it was, you know, their- My grandpa had super- a few cows. Yep. Whether it was they were grew up poor and they had- you know, 10, 20, 40 acres and a couple of cows and some pigs and, you know, and grandma, you know, cut chickens heads off and plucked chickens and strung beans on the back porch or whether they grew up, you know, more astute and their family comes from, you know, owned a plantation or a big sprawling, you know, estate or whatever. But everybody, for the most part, had a connect because, and this goes back to pre-civil, you know, pre-antebellum period. It's like the South is a very rural society, and we are pretty much predicated on, you know, a, attachment to the land. And that goes even further back into like the Scots-Irish uh, move, deeply moved into Appalachia and the South, and they are they brought with them that inherent connection to place. And whereas like the Slavic Germanic people that moved into say like the Midwest, very orderly peoples, people that were rooted in place, but had focused more on function. And, and so like, I, as it plays out for us culturally here, there's a, there's a big, um, I think void in a lot of people's life uh, that like they want to reconnect, reestablish a connection to the land. And so that I think is the root of what most people mean when they say that. And so I try to offer people a way to commune with that. And that's, that's a, that almost sounds like a Salatin-esque word to me, (laughs) you know? Um, and and because unlike Joel, who I think has done probably the most good for the movement, um, in terms of spreading the message, I think he's probably the best messenger that we've had. Yes. Um, I think that, you know, he's done some great things, but he's also made his farm available to anybody 24 seven. You know, you come out here, check it out, whatever. I'm personally not doing that. I don't think, <laughs> I don't want to be on call 24 seven to have, you know, feel like, Oh, who's driving up the driveway. Um, but I still want to, for people that want to make that connection, I want to make it available to them. Um, if they're paying customers a month, you know, clearly that, but that may be a small tidbit. I've had multiple customers, much like the guy uh, I mentioned earlier, who's buying the kids camp. I've had multiple customers who have gone on to, they started at buying my beef. They've gone on to buy some property Want it, like, and they're calling me like, hey, I want to get some chickens, you know, like, can you tell me what to do? Like, this. Um, and so yeah, like, I'd be happy to tell you what to do. My consulting rate starts at a thousand dollars a day. Well, uh, I mean, again, that is something that I struggled with a lot. And I think I talked to you about this last time we did a podcast. Like I do a, li- a very little, but I do some consulting for people. Um, mainly because like land is my passion and I, I enjoy looking at new land, thinking about how I would utilize it. What's the right 
you know, and I like enjoy helping people avoid the mistakes that I've made. Um, but at the same time, like I've always been in this wrestling match between like, okay, like you got this person who's bought, you know, five acres and thinks that are going to like you know, raise all their own food or whatever. <laughs> it's like, okay, that's, or do they realize the paradigm they're living inside of? And, Not saying it isn't and, possible. Uh, yeah. But, but from... it, it looks a lot different than you might think it does. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, it's, it's, and, it might seem real simple reading a Joel Salatin book, but yeah. reality yes. will smack you in the face. Yes. And that's the reality. The, what I have found, and this goes back to that uh, crunchy line of thinking in people, because that tends to be the majority of people that get into this, get in and over their head way too quickly um, and then want to like, oh, oh, I didn't think it would be this way. Uh, and then they need help. Um, but my whole thing is, is trying to originally I tried to help those kind of people. And then I was like, well, I went through this struggle of like, well, I'm not really helping the agricultural community by helping homesteaders. You know, like they, they're not doing it for a living. They're not like, they're not really benefiting the agricultural community. They're just looking out for themselves. And that's not bad. That's just not really doing a whole lot of um, external good. But then I, I kind of came to the realization. It's like, okay, but if, if I can help those people and wake them up to like, Hey, you're not in this alone and you can't do all this by yourself and you need to plug into the hole. Um, you need to plug into like, your local food community and yeah. cooperate with your neighbors yep. and not fight them. Exactly. And that, like, that's the part that, um, that I think it, it will over time do the most good. Um, you know, it's kind of, I've heard that said before, like the education sphere is like, you know, a, a teacher oftentimes doesn't see the, the good that the impact they make on the world. It's normally recognized, you know, long after they've done their duty. Okay. Um, that's fair. When you started college, mm-hmm. how many of your high school teachers did you appreciate versus how many of them do you appreciate now? Okay, I'm probably not the best person to ask that question to. <laughs> but I would say I would say um yes, yeah, it is more. It has grown. That number has grown. And um, and the point that I would make is, you know, Sometimes when we're right near one of those events, we don't understand the significance of the event. We don't understand the influence that that person has on us Mm -hmm. because maybe it's not, you know, maybe it's not something overt that they did. Maybe it's something really subtle that they said that's living in the back of your head for 10 years. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, that's what they meant. And it changes your whole paradigm. Yeah. Not saying anything like that's happened, but. You know, the older I get, the times that I do sit back and reflect on the mentors and the teachers that I've had, not just school teachers. Yeah. The ones that I didn't necessarily appreciate at the time, those are the ones I try to go back and think about. Like, what what were they, what did he teach me that I know now? Like, yeah. oh, well, you know, like my high school English teacher was 
extremely strict with how you wrote papers. Like if you did one run on sentence in a 10,000 word paper, you got an F automatically. And if that was the only thing that was wrong, you still got an F because he hated run on sentences and you better not have one in his paper. Wow. Made you really good at punctuation. <laughs> I mean, my punctuation, my grammar, I think is pretty, is pretty good for not ever going to college. And I thank yeah. Mr. Mr. Bruce hurdle for that. I mean, he was very strict. He had, he had extremely high standards for writing. He had extreme, extremely high standards for annotations and footnotes. And you had to be on your game. And you couldn't bullshit him because he, I mean, every, everybody that tried to look him up, everybody that tried to bullshit him got caught. Yeah. So I, I guess it's just, you know, perspective and being able to look back and reflect and, you know, see some of those influences back in your life and realize like, yeah, that person really did change me for the better, even though I might've hated them at the time. And I think that we've all had some experiences like that. So you, uh, you started to talk a little bit earlier about, uh, this lady that you met and then, you know, her wife and or uh, her and your wife were kind of going back and forth about formula. Oh yeah. While I was down in Stillwater mm-hmm. and I'll be, I'll just say it. So the essentials of regenerative ranching, it's kind of like a one Oh one. Yeah. Okay. How to send that. I felt like a PhD auditing a freshman course. Yeah. Like that's, that's honestly what I felt like. So there's, there's some parts where I kind of tuned out. Well, I started going down this thought experiment about two identical twins that were, that were carried by the same mother on the day of their birth, the birth mother gives up one of the twins for adoption. Okay. Just thought experiment. So roll with it. Yeah. So that baby's the baby that stayed with birth mom. His name is Larry. Now Larry's mom is crunchy. <laughs> okay. She's crunchy. She's she's gardening. She's raising them on breast milk. She's raising them like she's dragging them around the garden with them while she's while he's, you know, a baby, you know, got them on her chest, got her on her back, and yep. you know, doing the things. There's chickens, there's pigs, there's you know, sheep, goats, cows, whatever. Yeah. Okay. So she she's the crunchy homesteader mom. Mo's mom is the busy suburban professional mother, single mm-hmm. mother. So after her maternity leave, Mo goes straight on to formula, or maybe he went straight on formula the day she brought him home from probably the day she brought him home from the hospital because not birth mom, not going to have milk, right? So Mo's on a steady diet of formula. And I kind of thought about it like, okay, so what's this thought experiment going to be like? All right, well, let's write about their one-year checkup and their two-year checkup and their five-year checkup. Mm Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, okay, so at one year old, where's Larry going to be? He's probably going to be toward the bottom of height weight, but he's going to be pretty healthy. And a doctor's going to say, I'm worried about him that he's underweight. You fe- need to feed him more. Mo, the formula baby, was going to be at the top of, top of weight. Oh. And doctors are going to say, perfectly healthy. You're doing everything perfect. Great. Keep doing what you're doing. Year two is going to be a repeat of the same story. But I, I would theorize that Larry would be a little bit more cognitively developed because he spends all day with mom. Yes. Mo, I would argue, would be less cognitively developed because he's spending all day at daycare around six other kids, his exact same age with mental supervision from one adult. And as they get older, let's just say second birthday, they're started on solid food. Larry's eating tomatoes, 
out of the garden. You know, his mom's mushing up meat. She's giving him milk, getting, you know, cheese, all kinds of good stuff. Mo's getting pureed baby food, Cheerios, and formula still. So we go, you know, we go to the year two checkup. More of the same. We keep going to the year five checkup, which everybody's going to need before we go to go to kindergarten or preschool or whatever, right? Mo's going to be like borderline obese, maybe pre-diabetic. Larry's still going to be at the bottom of the weight for his height. And the doctor's still going to be concerned that he's eating enough. And let's run this all the way till they're 18 and graduate high school. Mo weighs 260 pounds. He's diabetic. He's got asthma because he can't breathe. Larry weighs 170 pounds. That's six foot. Skinny as a rail. Picture of health. Never been sick a day in his life. And Mo's been suffering. Mo's get sick every month, it seems like. Always has a stuffy nose. Always has a fever. Always has, you know, aches, pains. Something's always wrong with Mo. And I don't know what the purpose of this thought experiment is really. I mean, I just, I was just thinking about it because you brought that up about your wife. And I think it kind of serves to demonstrate these unintended consequences. We don't know what we don't know. And what we think has been a good thing because we're sold a pack of lies turns out to kill us in the long run. It's like we sell, we sell a short-term cure. We sell a short-term comfort and we never worry about the long-term consequences. And the more we get away from that and go back to a mindset where we're thinking about what action is, if I do this now, what effect is this going to have in 10 years? What effect is this? If I do this to the land, what effect is it going to have seven generations down the line? Which is, which is some of the philosophy that some Native Americans had. Yes. Okay, how does how does what I do today affect this land for seven generations? Not worried about you know if that guy in the next tent over there is going to be pissed off. We're not worried yeah. about that. We're worried about what it's going to look like in seven generations. Yep. And it's that kind of long term thinking that we need to get back to. Like, how are we going to? How are we going to want the next generation of children to grow up and be fed? How are we going to want them to eat? And I think that's why that's why there's so many crunchy moms now. Because they've seen what's happened over the last two generations to our society, and they don't want any part of it, or they want to do something different. Yeah. And it might not even be a conscious thing. It might just be a subconscious drive to want to get away from that. And maybe they don't even, maybe some of them don't even understand it understand why and I they think, know that I think they your thought ex- I think your thought of experiment is also applicable in the ranching community because when we start talking about how it plays out to raise cattle without the input crutch like when you raise cattle in their quote unquote natural environment inherently the ones that thrive in that environment are going to be the ones that are eh, it's a little small but uh might not be eating enough, but I just, you know, pass all the health checks. And like there, there's Bring something cap in every year, here, you know, like there's something to the make more with less or make do with less and, and how it affects us. But, and I think most of that is epigenetic, you know, like we have these like on off switches and I'm by no means a geneticist. Uh, but I think a lot of times the term genetics gets thrown around uh, all the time. 
in, in the livestock industry. Um, and in reality, most of what we're looking at is not genetics, it's epigenetics. It's what's what's been switched on and off. It's not the grand stream of the genetic profile. And so like functionally, I think the the child Larry in your it's funny because I like I've seen this play out with my own children is you know like yeah they're like they're a little bit smaller take a little bit more time to grow the and but what's funny is you mentioned like cognitive development and I've noticed it's a total sidebar has nothing to do with uh, livestock really but uh you know I've noticed like cognitively there's and this may be because we live a pretty isolated life obviously uh the kids that I know of that are eating junk food and are bigger than my kids and go to daycare or, you know, that kind of thing seems to me like they cognitively develop faster, but I don't necessarily view that as a good thing. So much in the sense, and this is always the, what I use when I talk to my wife about this is I use the example of a really good breeder of large or extra large breeds of dogs will typically tell you do not overfeed that animal when it's young like they need to be plus two years old before you actually feel like you're feeding them what they should eat because as they're growing and they're they're growing so fast their joints are setting like you can cause way more problems stacking weight on that animal too early um and i feel like the same thing happens like kind of in the brain is when you are feeding heavy calorie dense but not nutritionally dense food to your brain it allows for rapid growth but think of it but it's all sugars based you know it's all based on like okay uh and so i think that's why long term as you said you see it play out in ADHD, ADD, all that, like there's a lot of these other things that like, I feel like potentially stem from in the rapid growth phase, we're feeding things that are energy dense, calorically dense, but they're not nutritionally dense. And and the kid that gets nutritionally dense food, for a lack of better terms, stacks on or grows quality, you know, grows in terms of, of higher quality um, you know, mental functions. And that only plays out over time. Like I, I'm obviously not a scientist. I don't know how all that's, uh, you would have to study that for a long time to prove it out. But I think there's enough uh, smoke to say that there's obviously some fire somewhere in that. Good argument. luck getting the ethics committee to approve that study. Yeah, no, no. I, I don't think it's a study that needs to be done, to be honest with you. I think it's a study that is already, as we mentioned, is already course correcting. Um, because I truly believe, because I've seen it firsthand, um, in the insane, almost barbaric, uh, maternal drive, uh, like when we talk about, we use the term a mother's intuition, right? Um, I don't know if there's not more to that and I don't want to get to Joe Rogan into this thing and start talking about like, you know. <laughs> dmt and the other side and all that stuff but like there's uh, there is something whether it is deeply instinctual um 
or whether it is a true um, beyond physiological connection between a mother and her child. And I feel like that goes way deeper for children that are breastfed. And again, this is just me living in my own world here. Uh, and that like a, a mother has a desire before her baby's even born to do whatever it takes to protect that baby. That, that's like a psychological basic thing. Uh, Hardwired. Yes. We have done a lot of things in our society to push women to feel like to ignore that, that thought. Um, however, that, that, that's hardwired. And that's, that's, that is instinctual. You know, we see that in the animal kingdom. It's the same thing. Um, it's the same reason a, a, a good mama cow will stand there with a pack of coyotes around her and literally stomp her baby to death trying to kill coyotes, you know, uh, until they you know, take if your her, cows her had horns, they could, if your cows were yeah. armed. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> if they, if they had the tools that God gave them, um, however, on that note, I haven't killed a coyote one in five years. Well, my cows have, I have not. And I have lost a grand total of two calves to coyotes. And like, when I tell people that around here, they're like they they don't believe me they think i'm lying um and i think it's just because we so i just got through reading we were rereading um the lassiter philosophy of raising cattle okay and you know tom lassiter wrote about like that's kind of his philosophy was more strict than mine i'll kill armadillos uh because they're they're not native to here and they make uh leg breaking holes out in the pasture um I'll kill skunks too around the house because I don't want them around my uh, spraying my dog or or my kids or whatever. But um, that's fair. But you know, by and large, we try to live pretty in balance with our natural environment. And I found early on that killing coyotes was. Uh, I think it's hilarious, by the way, that we went from uh, breastfeeding to coyotes. But uh, <laughs> um, uh, I found Welcome early on reboot. Woo. Um, well, you know, that's what happens when you uh, put me and you together. It just, God knows where it's going to go. Um, yep. But I think that coyotes were one of the things that, like, people have a stigma about them. And really, they're just, for lack of better terms, they're filling a niche that would have been fill- filled by the red wolf, who altogether is not that different in size. Um functionally they're they're a little bit different in how they hunt and whatnot but like they're just filling a void and i feel like as long as we strive to keep our ecosystem in balance i for instance i've seen more rabbits here this year than i've ever seen before um probably because we've grown more grass here than we've ever grown before and they have a lot more places to hide uh so the survival rate's been astronomically higher and I think as you your land becomes more in balance with the way that it is meant to be on a productive capacity, the problems we have with predators, and obviously this is very southeastern centric. You know, if I was in the Rockies dealing with, you know, northern Rockies dealing with grizzly bears and mountain lions and stuff, I might have a totally different or 
you know, release the rules. I might have a different opinion. Um, but at least here with the problems we deal with, you know, we just don't have problems with coyotes attacking the cattle because the cattle are a unit. You know, you, I can put my cattle out in a 20 acre pasture and they still graze as a unit because they've been hardwired now to that's how they operate. Right. And so you, you know, you don't have, um, it's much more indicative of the natural systems. And so you don't, you know, yeah, you might have a couple of cows that stay in the shade, you know, some of the older, weaker cows or whatever. They may just like, yeah, I'm not getting out there in the middle of the day. I'll, I'll stay here. But they're not really the ones that are in danger, uh, you know, of a single coyote coming up doing anything to them. Uh, right. you know, they're not, they're not that stupid. And so we don't, we just don't see the issues with, with, Coyotes, and I think, you know, we, there are nights where we'll hear, you know, four or five of them around, you know, in different directions. But I think far too many people in my area focus so heavily on kill, kill, kill. And instead of what can we do to feed those animals, something other than what we're producing. Because we talk a lot about like multi-species grazing. And a lot of times that only gets talked about in the context of what other livestock classes am I bringing on? Um, but we, most of us live in an ecosystem that's wrought with other ruminants and other, uh, you know, other fauna. And it's like, why don't we focus on those as well? It's like, okay, if I can up my deer population, um, if I can, uh, yeah, like, sure. Do I want my deer fawns to get killed off by coyotes? Of course not. But again, that natural order that things. Yeah. But again, would I rather my deer fawns get killed, um, than my calves? Yeah. And guess <laughs> what? There's going to be some really smart does out there that put their cat, their fawns in the right spot that take care of them. Those are going to make it, and guess what? Genetics get propelled to the next generation. The no. ones that the ones that know how to survive, and guess which coyotes get kicked in the face and stomped on? The dumb ones that are immature and go after a calf on a you know fresh calf when that angry mama cow ain't having that crap. You know, like if you all you ever do is just focus and this is i think a gabe brown quote like if all you ever do is just wake up in the morning and focus on what can i kill today you're never going to be focused on what you can make live yep and, and so that's kind of the the direction that we we choose to face our management decisions and i mean heck we're our tagline is respectfully ranching in nature's image so it's kind of hard to say you're doing that if you're going out and just uh blasting everything you see going out every day blasting coyotes and spraying brush yeah well we gotta get out of here yeah i was gonna say we've been at this for uh two hours now you said you got a meeting after this so um, how do you want to end it as always Hmm. well i guess uh if anybody wants to get in touch with me, reverentwildranch at gmail.com. Find me on TikTok or Instagram at, at reverentwildranch. Um, and if you are interested in 
a grass-fed cooperative and what we're doing. We are grass-fed co-op or grassfedcooperative.com. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's my only little spiel, I guess. You got a coupon code for that grass-fed co-op? I do. It is wild 10 and that gets you 10% off. There you go, guys. Wild 10 for 10% off on grass-fed co-op. So how about that? Uh, it's a little incentivize in a little incentivization, but, uh, I think we'll, uh, we're looking to grow, uh, I, I say that I know your audience is heavily rancher based um, and we're, you know, we're trying to grow within our means, you know, we're at right now we want to obviously have enough demand. We're trying to build our demand to the point where we can bring on more people. Uh, we got an interview with somebody um, on Tuesday um, to onboard somebody else. But if you're interested, if you think our standards are actually on the website. If so, if your ranch meets the standards and it's something you think you'd like to possibly participate in, you know, hit us up. We'll uh can't promise you that it's gonna like we'll onboard you right away or whatever, but we never hurts to have a backlog. So good stuff. Good stuff. I might yeah. even have to go apply myself. Hey, please do. No, I think uh, I think I don't I don't think I'm overstepping my bounds to say that uh if somebody's getting onboarded, Brian Alexander might show up to your ranch to make sure you actually mean what you say. <laughs> I you know, I wasn't gonna bring that up, but you know, I, I would be happy to work with you guys in whatever capacity you would have me in. Yeah, man. I I think that's uh you know, you and a couple other people that we're we're both friends with we've had conversations with, I think, you know, for the people that either can be a part of it or, you know, maybe not so much in the marketing side of things uh, or the beef sales directly side of things, but have the, have the knowledge base and can validate things. Uh, you know, that's pretty important too. Um, Cause obviously like we, I, I know I, I don't want to keep you any longer, but uh, I'll quickly say like, you know, the cooperative had like, there's plenty of other things out there, other, um, uh, oh, what the, what's the word I'm looking for? Just lost it. Um, like validating bodies out there, like American grass-fed association. There's, yeah. Okay. There's yeah. Other, certifiers. Um, <clears throat> yeah. So like most of those in some form or fashion are pay to play. Uh, not saying they're dishonest, just saying like the, there are some functional flaws in, in how people get audited. Um, and the, you know, we, we tried to set out to raise the bar in terms of the actual standards being exactly what the consumer perceives the standard to be, not what we as producers know them to be. And that's a much higher bar to jump over. So yeah, anyway. If, if you're going to uh, call it pasture finished, and yeah. I show up and you've got pens with feed bunks that look like they've had animals in them recently and, you know, overhead feed bunks and, yeah, it's, feed, and, and you got a, and, you got a feeder on the back of the flatbed and, you know, uh, full of, full yeah, of cubes. Like, it's like, I, uh, I, I'm going to question you. Like it, yeah. you're going to get questioned. If you say you're grass fed and you're feeding corn silage. Okay. We'll probably let that pass because you know, that's technically correct. But as long as you're upfront about what you're doing. And I'm like, like, I haven't looked into your detailed standards to know that yeah. that's okay or not. Just kind of talking out, just, I'm just talking. Yeah. 
you know, no, that that's something that we want to, and that, that's another part of the cooperative we didn't really touch on is the auditing process that we've set up um, that will, I think, change. This episode wasn't all about grass fed co op. We'll do another one of those yeah, later. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we can do another one of this later. But uh, yeah, so anyway, I know you got to get out of here and I, you know, I'll just keep running my mouth. So, <laughs> well, it's always a pleasure to talk to you, Michael. I'm, yeah, brother. Congratulations on, Thanks. on your growing family. And I look forward to talking you. to you and seeing how your no hay winter went and uh, seeing how your 45 day breeding cycle went. Well, you will know uh, long before probably we do another podcast. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Well, let's not wait a let's not wait a year to do another one, bud. Let's not. Let's do one uh, in a couple of months and check in. Looking forward to it, man. All right. See you, brother. Have a good evening. All right. See you, brother. And uh, rest of you out there in podcast land. Uh, I guess go have a good week or something. Bye. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to our podcast. We'd also love to hear your thoughts, so leave us a review if you haven't already. And don't forget to check out the Q and A and the polls on Spotify. Your support helps us bring more enlightening conversations and fresh stories from the world of farming and ranching. Thank you for listening to Ranching Reboot, your favorite regenerative ag podcast.